So today we do live in an urgent world. Uh, everything, I don't know about you, but just seems so urgent. Uh, gone are the days when you would send letters uh, to communicate with those around us uh, who don't live just around the corner. Uh, technology has kind of changed all this. Uh, now, if you don't get an instant message back on your phone from someone else, you might be forgiven for thinking, is everything okay with that person? Or maybe, are they snubbing me? The same is true of the workplace. We must get that project done, that job signed off or booked in, that package delivered, those emails read and responded to, those voice messages listened to and calls returned. Uh, the same is true with our travel and holidays. Uh, once that holiday finally arrives, there is an urgent rush to pack the car or the caravan clothe and feed the kids, or not, and squeeze them into the back of the car, between the car fridge, and then shoot off on the road, hopefully in time to beat that peak hour traffic. And if that is not all quick enough for you, and if your destination is far enough away, maybe you simply drive to the airport, and in no time you'll be cruising at 39,000 feet in the air at an eye-watering speed of 863 kilometers an hour all the way to your destination. But for all the urgency that exists in our modern world, there is something else that is more urgent. Something else that we urgently need to be made ready for. John the Baptist tells us what it is in verse 2. Repent for the kingdom of of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 3, this new finger, John, comes waltzing in onto the scene. This passage contains the teaching and preaching of this peculiar fellow, John the Baptist, a man who comes with a fiery message, an urgent message of repentance in light of God's coming kingdom, urgently warning all to be ready for this coming kingdom of heaven. And as we're going to be exploring this passage, we're only really thinking about two things, the why and the how. Why, according to John here, is heeding the message of the gospel so important? And furthermore, how do we be prepared for this coming kingdom that John speaks of? And so first, I just want to jump straight into the why. Why, according to our passage, is the message of God's coming kingdom so urgent? Why does John urgently call us to repentance? Well, what we learn from our passage is that John really has two things to warn us about, two dangers that he mentions. As we dig down into these dangers, it's helpful for us to get a sense of who John the now, in the Bible, John the Baptist was an important figure in the biblical narrative. He had the important role of preparing Israel for the coming of their Messiah. All four Gospels speak of him. All four Gospels show that John fulfilled Isaiah 40. And he was a peculiar figure indeed. Uh, for Westerners reading this for the first time, you might be mistaken for thinking John was the original Bear Grylls, being a man who lived out in the wilderness, 
and ate delicious delicacies from the forest floor. I mean, what are, you, are we to make of this strange fellow? You might be thinking, are you really meant to take this guy seriously? But John, with his rough clothing and a rough message to match, he was not alone, saying a similar message to those who have gone before him. In this way, John followed in the footsteps of other Old Testament prophets, especially that of Elijah, who also often lived in the wilderness and wore rough apparel. By fulfilling Isaiah 40, Matthew's indicating here that what John is saying here, and in the coming of John, a new and greater return from exile was on the immediate horizon for Israel. Chapter 40 of Isaiah is a really key chapter in the book of Isaiah. You might even say that it's the pivotal chapter of the whole book. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah call out Israel's sin and proclaims God's judgment both against Israel and the surrounding nations. Isaiah 39 ends with a dire warning of the coming exile into Babylon for God's people. From verse 5 in that chapter, we read this. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall, shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. What follows then in the rest of the book of Isaiah, from chapters 40 to 66, uh, 66 is uh, really chapters that address the post-exile community of faith. Chapter 40 begins with the words of comfort to those who have found themselves in exile and a prophecy of a coming day when their exile would be over. Isaiah 40 begins with these words. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Now the rest of the Old Testament narratives show how this return from Babylon, Babylon um, exile was actually something that kind of happened. It was fulfilled in ancient Israel's history. Uh, the books of Ezra, Nehemiah and Haggai speak of Israel returning to the land and rebuilding the temple of the Lord that was completely wiped out and destroyed. But this return from exile did not, did not mean a complete return. Spiritually, Israel remained sinful. Although physically now back in the land, spiritually they were yet to fully return to the Lord with their whole hearts. The ministry of John the Baptist then occurred on the threshold of God's coming king and God's king, King Jesus. John was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
In other words, John was kind of screaming out to Israel saying, Hey, everyone, wake up. The moment of your true spiritual return to God is finally here. Your true king is coming. Get ready to meet him. It's in this setting and with this message of repentance from sins that many were coming out to John from Jerusalem and all Judea to be baptized by him and to confess their sins. But the reality was that many in Israel did not recognize their need to confess and repent of their sin. This introduces us to the first danger that John wants us to be aware of. The danger of being blind to your own sin. The danger of self-righteousness. And especially those who actively promote and teach such views. Something that the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Jewish leaders of the time, were indeed guilty of. Uh, From verse 7, John speaks pretty ferociously against them. I read again from verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say, say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. If every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, the Pharisees and Sadducees think, thought themselves to be kind of on the right track. They, in their heart, did not recognize their need for, for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Now, the danger of thinking yourself good enough and not a sinner is indeed a key issue in our culture today. Where many walk our streets blind to the reality of their own sin either apathetic to the idea or kind of think it's a bit of a joke. Or maybe they're outright hostile to the idea that we are inherently sinful, seeing it as a doctrine that is more harmful and dangerous than essential. Perhaps our cultural response to self-righteousness and that attitude can be somewhat likened to the fateful events that occurred on April 14, 1912. That evening, a large uh, ocean liner named the Titanic was sailing along the ocean. That night, the sea was calm and smooth, like a sea of glass, with the stars shining and reflecting off the ocean. No one at that stage knew what was about to happen next, with the ship soon colliding with an iceberg just before midnight. Apparently, when the stewards uh, began warning the passengers of the dangers that they were in and ordering them to put on their life belts, many passengers kind of thought the order was a joke. Furthermore, because it was late at night, many passengers were fast asleep and needed to be urgently woken up. Now, when it comes to the knowledge of uh, sin and personal sin, many in our culture react the same way either taking sin to be a big joke or simply being sleepy to the fact that they are sinners in need 
of a saviour. Are you sleepy to this fact too? Have you been convicted this day of your own sin by the Holy Spirit? Or are you traveling along as if life is kind of A-OK, like you're traveling along on a beautiful sea of glass without a care in the world, not knowing about the danger ahead? God's word here warns us not to listen to modern-day equivalents of Pharisees and Sadducees, warning us that we aren't good enough in ourselves for God, warning against the idea of not believing that we're inherently sinful, or that we, um, or warning against the thought that we can somehow correct our sin by our own good deeds. This first danger leads to the second and more significant danger that John wants us to be aware of: the danger of God's coming wrath. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Exclaims John. A message not at all welcomed by self-righteous Jews who failed to acknowledge the danger of God's wrath coming against them for their sin. Now the thought that God will judge with unquenchable fire all who reject the gospel is not easy or comfortable to consider. Yet for John, and indeed all who would believe the message of the Bible, it's unavoidable. Why? Because the coming of God's kingdom is interlocked with judgment by fire. Why? Because you can't have God's kingdom unless you also have the fullness of God's holy presence. And God's holy presence cannot mix positively with sin-stained souls, nor with a sin-stained world. This reality makes the gospel message urgent. Thinking about the nearness of God's kingdom and its urgency could perhaps be pictured like this. Imagine if you were to go inside a house and you go into one of the rooms in that house where all is calm and well. Uh, Maybe you kick up your feet, have a cup of tea and start reading a book. Now, this room that you're in in this house uh, is somewhat equivalent to this present life. Now, while you're in this room, unbeknownst to you, right next door to you in the room over from you, a fire has started and is now raging. And you are completely unaware of it while you just kick on with things in the room that you're in. But you tell me what's going to happen. It's not too long before that fire consumes the whole house, including the room that you're in. Now, if that other room with the fire is somewhat equivalent to the kingdom of heaven and God's coming judgment, where God's holy presence will completely pervade in all fullness uh, all this earth, then this illustration can help give us a bit of a picture of why we need to be made ready and safe. For it is not long before everything we know in this current room is overtaken and invaded by this fire in that other room. So that is some of the why that we've considered today. John is warning us, saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is coming. We've seen how John warns us of two dangers. It's urgent because of God's coming wrath. And we don't have the safeguards in ourselves 
and our own righteousness to be made ready for this coming fire. Let's consider the next then the how. How do we be prepared? As we consider the how today, we're going to consider two baptisms mentioned in our text. And what we see is that John's baptism points towards a greater baptism, one that was internal and not merely external. In verses 11 we read, it says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. To understand first John's baptism here, one needs to understand the original context. It was common at the time for non-Jewish people who wanted to convert to Judaism uh, to go un- undergo a washing themselves. This washing meant that they recognized themselves as unclean spiritually and ritually. Physically washing then was symbolic for being spiritually washed and cleansed as they entered the covenant community. But what was shocking for Pharisees and Sadducees was that John was baptizing Jewish people, signaling to these Jewish leaders that all the Jewish people too were unclean in God's eyes. Despite them being set apart as God's holy nation, they too were just as in need of being purified from their sins as the surrounding Gentile nations. But John knew that despite his urgent message of repentance, his ability to effect change in the Jewish people was severely limited. Like other Old Testament prophets that came before him, any spiritual renewal coming from John's ministry was only ever going to be partial in nature and would not bring about lasting change. John, as the last prophet under the old covenant, could only point forward. Something more was needed. Jesus was needed. And the baptism by the Holy Spirit. To be baptized by God, the Holy Spirit, and fire points to being purified rather than consumed. A bit like the process of refining gold in a furnace. John is speaking of a fiery encounter with God that purifies the soul rather than the soul facing the fire of God's wrath. But how how can this be so? When I've already said that God and sin can't positively mix together. Like oil and water, they don't mix well. Well, this brings us to the miracle and center of what Jesus achieved for God's people on the cross. This brings us to the central doctrine of substitutionary atonement. A doctrine that teaches that on the cross, it was Jesus who received the penalty of sin in the place of sinners. He was there on the cross, made our substitute, bearing the wrath of God and being consumed in our place to turn away the wrath of God from us. Being the Lamb of God who has made the perfect sacrifice, paying the debt of sin completely. At one moment in time, 
one sacrifice once and for all. Opening up the way for believers to be reconciled to God rather than facing his wrath. Furthermore, it's God the Holy Spirit who applies this so great a salvation that Jesus secured on the cross to the believer's heart. Ever since the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon true believers at Jerusalem, what was Christ is now ours. Through the Holy Spirit, believers are spiritually united with Christ. That is, not only has Christ paid the debt of our sin, but we are now declared righteous in God's eyes, being clothed with Christ's perfect righteousness. Through God the Holy Spirit, we are given a new heart, made spiritually alive with the Holy Spirit now dwelling in every believer. Fellow churchgoer this morning, this is the good news of the gospel. This is why Jesus is good news to the world. For it is the declaration that God has come to dwell with his people. Through Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in us, every believer can enjoy God's presence without fear of punishment. Instead of facing the fire of hell, God offers us the fire of purification of the forgiveness of sins, and of eternal life and joy with Him. But for this to be good news, for you and I personally, it requires the right response to this news. John makes it clear. Repentance. Our passage is full of twos this morning, two dangers, two baptisms, two types of fires. Either that that consumes or the purifying one. And the final two is two responses to the gospel. Either those who choose to repent or those who refuse to do so. What is repentance? Well, the biblical concept involves the idea of a radical change of mind. Not merely an intellectual one but one that means and and results in a change of one's entire being and the direction that you're going. You could say it's a complete turnaround of one's life. It involves real remorse and anguish over how you've sinned against God, knowing that you in in your sin are displeasing in his sight. It's confessing your sin before him, not with words alone, but from the heart. Acknowledging your need for forgiveness and mercy. And coupled with faith, it's looking to Jesus the Messiah for forgiveness and the cleansing from your sin. Knowing that in your heart, in Christ, God now accepts you. I wonder if your heart is warm with that knowledge this morning. Not only this, that... uh, Not only is repentance involved in the beginning of our Christian life and anyone who wants to become a Christian and turn to Jesus. It doesn't end there, though. Repentance is also 
meant to be intricately woven into the very fabric of the Christian life. As we continue to fight and repent of sin that remains in our life until Christ returns and makes us perfect in every way. The question for all of us this morning, for you and for I, for all listening, have you repented before the Lord Jesus? Uh, or are you rejecting his call to respond in this way? The Titanic is sinking with the whole world declared to be under God's judgment. It's only a matter of time before the ship completely sinks. Will you get off in time? The room next door is burning. Are you going to be safe when that fire does come? Being safely covered by the blood of Jesus that was shed for you on the cross. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Have you repented and turned to Jesus in faith and repentance? Are you ready to meet King Jesus? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the message is loud and clear from your word this morning. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Father, we live in a culture where that is not an acceptable message. Father, the human heart does not wish in itself to believe that we are not good and that we are deserving of judgment. Father, many in our culture remain blind to the, to the reality of sin. Father, I pray that you would open up hearts to the need for repentance and forgiveness. And Father, we confess again and just uh, admit how we've offended you in our sin against a holy and pure and good God. Father, will you forgive us? And Father, we know that in Jesus, indeed, we are forgiven for all who believe and turn to him for salvation. Father, we thank you that on the cross you were indeed rich in mercy and in grace towards sinners. But Father, you chose to come to this world to seek out the lost, to save those who are wandering far away from you. And Father, we want to thank you afresh this morning for the great grace that you've poured out upon your people. Father, we pray for anyone listening in today that has not accepted Jesus as their Savior. Father, will you graciously open up their hearts to Jesus? And may they experience your love deeply today. And Father, we thank you that as we as Christians live and continue to live in a world that is still affected by sin and we are still affected by sin, Father. Father, we long for the day that your kingdom does come in its entirety. Father, we hold on to that, knowing that there will be a day where everything crooked will be made straight, that all the wrongs and the hurts and the suffering and the sin in this world will be done and dealt with in its entirety. Father, I pray, Lord, that as we head out as your people today, that others would see the hope that we have in Jesus, in our demeanor, in our words that we speak, in the way that we live our life. 
Father, help us to be people who don't hold too tightly onto the things of this world, but rather hold on to your promises and the promise of eternal life. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.